0: So today we're continuing our new series in the book of 1 Corinthians with a look at chapter 1 verses 17 uh, to 31. But before we dig into the scripture, I want to tell you a little story. Uh, Now some of you may have heard this from me before, but it's worth reiterating. This is a story about I guess maybe the third time that I ever stood up at the front to speak about the Bible. I was attending our Verwood site, which at that time was called Verwood Family Church. Um, And I was good friends with another preacher there, a guy that I looked up to and who was always uh, persuasive in his messages. He always argued his points really well. He was an excellent communicator, and he was a forceful speaker. And I wanted to be just like him. So... I became super zealous for being right about God's Word. I became passionate about being a great preacher. And I was eager to argue my case really, really well. And I remember sitting in the front row waiting to be called up to preach. And alongside my normal sort of nerves that I get when I'm going to speak, I felt a sort of Righteous confidence. (laughs) I'd worked hard. I put the hours in, in my study and my prep, and I had a great message to bring. I had a sure challenge to bring to the church. And I had a lot to say about a lot of things to a lot of people. I was confident in my content. I knew I'd be eloquent in my delivery, and I was proud of the message I had crafted. And I thought, I've got this. This morning, I have got this. So I'm called to the front, and the anchor prays for me, and the congregation is laid out before me, no doubt eager to hear the pulse of wisdom I was about to drop. I pause to look at my notes like this. I looked up ready to begin. I opened my mouth to say the first line, that's in my absolute horror. And my confusion, no words came out. I looked at my notes again. I read the first line I know what I need to say. I go to speak, but nothing happens. Nothing happens. I don't even think my mouth was moving. I think there was just like an exhalation of air, like a uh, uh, as I tried to make some sounds, make some noise. And now 50 pairs of eyes are boring into my soul. I can feel it, and I can imagine what they're thinking. I think they're thinking he's choked. He can't do it. Someone else is going to have to take over. It's too much for him. Probably he shouldn't have been there in the first place. And in that moment, I knew what I had done wrong. So in my head, I prayed. I said, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my self-righteousness. I'm sorry for my pride, I'm sorry for thinking that I had this all together because of my work and my effort. I said, I'm sorry for thinking I could deliver your word without you, that I could carry it with my clever words. Sorry that I valued my gift more highly than you, the gift giver. I said, God, if you want me to, I'll sit down now and I won't preach again. But if it's your will for me to carry on, and if you'll use my words for your glory, then please open my mouth now. And suddenly it was like a dam had burst, or a gate had opened, and my words just came spilling out. Probably sounded really quick and jumbled those first few moments. I don't know if I preached a clear message, or if I preached a poor message, or whatever. But I do know this, God allowed me to preach that day. And it was God who was bringing any fruit from it. And I learned a massive lesson that day. God's not interested in clever sermons, thank God. He's not interested in great preachers. He's interested in humble servants who follow his lead. And that chap I wanted to be like, my friend, for all his clever and persuasive preaching, he has now completely stalled in his journey with Jesus. In fact, he seems to be walking further away from him every day. My heart is broken because I don't think he learned that lesson. Proverbs 3 verse 7 says this, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. This is the truth I learned as I got up to preach that day. This is the truth I remember every time I get up here to preach now. And this is the truth at the center of our chapter in 1 Corinthians. And it's the truth I want us to bear in mind as we read our passage together. God's not interested in clever preachers or in great preachers. He's interested in humble servants. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 17 to 31. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. I'm going to read the the whole passage and then we're going to look at some parts of it. Paul writes this. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent, quiz, eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Heavenly Father, we want to boast in you this morning. We want to boast because, Jesus, you are our righteousness. You are our redemption. You are our salvation. And I pray as we study your word now, as we dig into it, Open our hearts and minds to receive all the goodness that you have for us this morning. And let us leave this place boasting in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in the cross that is foolishness to the world, but is salvation to us. Amen. Okay. In this passage, Paul is continuing to address the issue of division that has occurred in the Corinthian church. Previously, in verses 10 to 16, Paul highlights the fact that individual factions have begun to sprung up, spring up, and church family have been aligning themselves with different preachers or teachers. Some people have grouped together under the name of Jesus' disciple, Peter, who preached and saw 3,000 people added to the church in one day. Some have rallied under the banner of Apollos, who was great at clearly communicating the gospel. And some are claiming superiority in that they, more than any others, follow Christ. But most awkwardly for Paul, some are declaring him to be their champion. Because he's a gifted teacher, and evangelist, he's the one who planted the church. And for some of them, he's the one who baptized them personally, which presumably meant they were especially favored. But here's the issue. Like me, when I got up to preach that day, they were valuing the gift more highly than the gift giver. Whether it's Peter's conversion rate, or Apollos' communication skills, or indeed Paul himself, God had given these gifts to bless the church. But it's not their wisdom or abilities that should have been the focus. The focus should have been on God alone. So Paul hits this issue head on, and he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He's saying, let's get our priorities straight. Baptism or no baptism, I was sent to you to preach. Straight away, Paul points away from himself and towards God, and he highlights two facts. First, that he was sent. Now That's always the person of greater authority or importance that sends the lesser. In this case, the risen Lord Jesus sent Paul, and he wants everyone to know that. And secondly, he was not primarily there to baptize, something that the Corinthians seem to see as tied to significance and prominence in the church. Paul was sent as a simple messenger. In all humility and honesty, Paul says, Jesus just sent me to tell you about his story. That's it. Then he goes on to address the deeper issue of the Corinthians' kind of lust for wise-sounding, cleverly phrased teaching by reminding them of how he preached the gospel to them and therefore how they were saved in the first place. You see, the Corinthians were used to hearing compelling and well-reasoned arguments for things. They were used to hearing complex patterns of speech called rhetoric that both entertained and convinced them as listeners. You know, the people who were good at this stuff were held with high regard. They really valued speakers like that. People loved to listen to their debates and their conversations as they pit their intellects and their intelligence against one another. But in contrast to all that, Paul says he came not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Paul came with a clear message expressed in simple terms using plain language. Why? Because he didn't want to dilute the power of the gospel by adding more and more of himself to it through fancy phrases and clever words and convoluted concepts. He knew the gospel wasn't about him It was a, or about how convincing or persuasive he was. It was about the authority and power of the one he was pointing to. In other words, Paul says that the way he delivered his message was all the more simple so that the powerful work of God the spirit in the hearts of his hearers would be seen all the more clearly. And the evidence of God's power at work could be clearly seen, because the church itself was that evidence. The people who had heard the gospel message and responded with faith could only have done so through the power of God. Not because of Paul's clever words, not because of Paul's clever arguments, but because God the spirit was at work in their hearts Opening them up to the good news of the gospel. Paul reinforces his point in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To the Corinthian church, the gospel message is the power of God because they are being saved, Paul says. Like a person who was swimming in a riptide, but has received a lifesaver and is now on board the rescue boat on their way to dry land. They have been saved. They received a lifesaver. They are being saved. They're on the boat heading to the shore, and they will be saved when they arrive safely there. But to the rest of the world who haven't been touched by the power of God, the message of the gospel is foolishness. Because they're unaware of their fate. They don't know they're swimming in a riptide, being pulled further and further and further from the shore. And so the offer of a lifesaver is of no value. And all the while, they're perishing more and more each moment. To carry on the analogy, often when the world hears our cries of warning through the proclamation of the gospel, its response is, don't worry, I'm a strong swimmer. That's what the world says. I don't need what you're offering. But when you boil it down, the response is really pride. It says, I can do this on my own. It says, I can work hard enough. I can be a good enough person. I can make my own way. And The problem is, you can't fight this tide, and you certainly can't beat it. In terms of the Corinthians, their pride was in the wisdom of mankind. By valuing the gifts and leaders that God had given them more highly than God himself, they had elevated human wisdom above God's wisdom. So that to them, the wisdom of God began to look like foolishness. So Paul paraphrases a passage from the book of Isaiah where the prophet Isaiah voices God's frustration with a people that place more value on human wisdom than on God's sovereignty. I'm going to read you some of that passage so you'll get the full force of what Paul's trying to say here. Isaiah 29, 13 to 16. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips whilst their hearts are far from me, And their fear of me as a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and here's our verse, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. I want you to notice there, in that central bit. It's the wonderful things that God will do that cause the wisdom of wise men to perish. And the discernment of the discerning to be hidden. It's the wonderful things that God will do. And Paul's point here in this passage is that God has done those wonderful things in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's no surprise that the message of the cross is exactly the sort of wonderful thing that destroys the wisdom of the worldly wise and thwarts the discernment of the so called discerning. Isaiah said that would happen. And Jesus, it has happened. But, brothers and sisters, there's an application point for us here. Because this truth is as relevant to us in our day and in our context as to the Corinthians, maybe in a slightly different way. We live in a world that has elevated human wisdom far above the wisdom. And the sovereignty of god and for the price of an internet connection you can access all of it there are religious institutions and leaders that only honor god with their lips whilst their hearts are far from him and in their human wisdom they teach all sorts of things that are contrary to god's word There are people who make great-sounding arguments and seem to be extremely wise indeed, and yet their true intentions and activities are hidden. There are people who make great-sounding... Sorry, there are people who make it their business to turn godly values and practices upside down under the guise of wisdom and progress. And there are those that outright declare that either there is no God... Or that we have become so wise as a race that we are no longer have any need of him. And the message for the Corinthians and the message for us today is don't be fooled. Beware of those who value human wisdom over God's wisdom. Don't align yourself with teachers or leaders because of their status or their ability or their intellect whether it's church leaders, politicians, social media influences, academics, scholars, the point is, for all their knowledge, for all their wisdom, for all their pride and vanity in their own understanding, they are considered fools in the eyes of the only wise God. Don't let that be your metric to decide who your leaders are those people are perishing along with everyone else who is unable and unwilling to see the truth of the gospel. If you want to know what it looks like to be a good leader, if you want to know what it looks like to align yourself with leaders who are after God, ask this question, are they preaching Christ crucified? Is the power of God at work in their lives to bring about transformation? These are questions to think about, not Are they gifted preachers? Are they skilled at convincing people of things? Paul goes on to say, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Human beings cannot find or know God through our own wisdom, intellect, or understanding. Therefore, to find and know God, we have to come to the seemingly foolish message of the gospel so that we can be saved. Remember, it's the power of God's wonderful gospel that destroys the wisdom of the worldly wise and thwarts the discernment of the so-called discerning. And God is pleased to display his upside down, back to front kingdom through the gospel of Jesus because it cuts through and it tears down human pride. Because only God could take something as offensive and counterintuitive as the message of the cross and transform it into the hope of the world. And only by receiving and believing through faith in Christ Jesus can anyone be saved. The only way to access God is through Jesus and through the cross. The crazy thing about the gospel in Paul's day is that to a Jew, the thought of a crucified Messiah was utterly unthinkable. The Messiah was coming to boot out the Romans and restore Israel as a nation. And to do that, you needed a strong military Messiah, someone like King David of old. Whereas a king who was hung on a tree was accursed. And a king who died was a failure. And in Jesus' death on the cross, the Jews saw both of those things. And that meant the crucifixion wasn't just hard to swallow, it was a stumbling block, literally something they'd strike their foot on and trip over, something that stopped them from making progress with the gospel. As for the Corinthians, a crucified savior was utterly foolish. Crucifixion was such an unsavory method of punishment that it was saved for the very worst offenders under Roman law. For us, it'd be like proclaiming a death row offender as the Messiah, ...or declaring a victim of the electric chair as your saviour. It makes no sense. It's foolishness. In fact, the good news that Jesus is God in the flesh... ...that he lived a perfect life... ...and died a terrible death on the cross... ...that he took our place... ...and paid for our sins with his blood... ...and that God raised him to new eternal life on the third day... ...so that everyone who believes in him will be saved this good news still sounds crazy and foolish to the world. And it is a stumbling block to people who try to own it with their intellect. That's not how you come to the cross. But as Paul says in verses 24 to 25, but to those who are called, church, that's me and you, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You want to know what wisdom looks like? It looks like Jesus. You want to know what power looks like? Power looks like Jesus. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's not foolish. God's not weak. Paul's trying to make a point. He's saying, whatever you think is foolishness of God is wiser than anything mankind can produce. Whatever you think looks like weakness from God is stronger than anything that man can conceive of. In the cross of Christ, God not only displays the enormity of his wisdom and his might and his power, but in contrast, he highlights the hopeless futility of trusting in the wisdom of man. In the last few verses of this passage, Paul reminds the Corinthians both of who they were and who they are now, and he beautifully unpacks God's sovereign, transforming work in their lives. I want you to listen and see if God reminds you of those things too this morning. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards not many of you were powerful not many were of noble birth but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong God chose what is weak to um, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. We have a reason to boast in the Lord this morning. Paul's point here is that God didn't choose the Corinthians because of their merits. So they have no foundation to boast, either because of their gifts or their heritage or the leaders that they've divided themselves over. Paul wants them to understand that God chose them despite the fact that they were all unworthy so that his power and his glory might be seen to operate all the more clearly through them. And that means that their only boast then can be in God and what a glorious boast that is. Paul finishes by encouraging them that now they do have a standing. Now, they do have a heritage. Now, they do have gifts, but only because they are in Christ Jesus. They are caught up into him and into everything he has won on the cross. If I could have the worship team up, I'm going to finish with this. Brothers and sisters, I did feel this morning, apart from anything else, that God wanted you to be encouraged with this thought. As a follower of Jesus, you may not be wise according to worldly standards. You may not be powerful or of noble birth. And you may, as a follower of Jesus, feel foolish and weak, even low and despised. You may even feel like a thing that is not in this world. But God wants you to know this. God has chosen you to shame the wise of this world. God has chosen you to shame the strong. And God has chosen you to bring to nothing the things that are in this world. Why? So that through you and me, who are all utterly unworthy, the power of God and the glory of God might be seen to operate all the more clearly in us and through us into the world. Remember that you are in Christ Jesus. That you have received wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification and redemption through Him. And that is a reason to boast this morning. Amen? Let me ask you to stand. We're going to go into worship now. And we don't, I think, still have words. But I want you to cry out with your hearts, whether you know the words or not, and boast in our God this morning for all that he has done, for his salvation over us, for his rescue, and for the way he has chosen us to be the instruments of his gospel to the world.